0: Hey everyone, welcome to the world's OKS Entrepreneur, the podcast for the OK entrepreneur who doesn't have an MBA and it's just kind of figured out as they go.
1: Today on the podcast, we welcome Josie Lewis. Josie has millions of followers on the internet and has really kind of figured out in the most interesting, shape-shifty way of how to make a career as an artist in the way that is 100% not taught in schools and doesn't follow the MBA path. And you're going to love this story. It was such a surprise and delight to talk to her. And on to the show.
0: I think that's the fun part about doing this is you get to learn so much about everybody as we're sitting out and talking to them. And I think that's uh, that's like the biggest benefit I've taken out of this is just like really getting to know people that we kind of see on the Internet or see. Yep. Uh-huh. Or see peripherally or, or people that we know we, we that we have a relationship with, but we've never talked for more than two hours, like two hours in one sitting with.
2: Yeah, well, wow, there we go. Camera, yeah, camera. I'll don't mind. I mean, Josie has got to take that's
0: content
1: right. for herself all Right, the right. Time.
2: Uh, all the time.
1: To- I think if you were, I would be really confused if you were like, I would actually prefer if we didn't do any of this. I'd be
2: like, yeah, that's interesting. Tell me about that. I mean, it's, it's goals because I feel like I the Gary V thing is like always be filming, you know, so you're not creating content. You're just documenting. Right.
0: And I, I can never do that. See, I wish there was like a little drone that would just follow me around. That was silent, 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 not just like, right.
2: (laughs) And invisible just like filming and getting really good shots. Yeah.
0: And then I could send it to AI and be like, yeah, could you just fix that for me? Give me some shots that sound interesting because for me to sit there and set something up, I'm like, I need to get this stuff done. Yeah. How do I get this stuff done without wasting this time trying to film? That's
1: actually, I don't know. Well, because I always like, I love listening to YouTuber Colin and Samir. They have a YouTube pod. It's not even a YouTube pod creator, but that is actually what Mr. Beast did is he actually has paid the money to follow him around all the time and record him and there it's just, he's like, and he was like, it's, Eventually, he's like, "I'm going to make it into a documentary." But it was like, "Is so much footage though to call through." That's, it's not yeah. The, the editing, editing right. it is the editing. It's of the Edit. It?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. is truly the because you're yeah. You're trying to boil it down to a funny 15 minute YouTube video, and you have and, and like 10 hours a week of, of, of like, footage. Yeah, I know that's like that's always the crazy thing because you like, can't really scrub it. You have to actually watch it, you know, because the editors yeah, watching
0: you know. your own stuff and yeah. also listening to yourself talk. Yeah, it's like a lot.
2: Yeah. Oh, so, I guess I should put this on. No, you can. I mean, well, then that's kind of
1: interesting because like you very much so are a, you're a self-taught editor.
2: Yes. Like what was that process like? I really like editing a lot. I think editing is uh, vi- video cam like video editing is super duper fun. And in fact, I have a, almost a full-time editor now that I send a lot of stuff to and I miss it because it's, there's as much um, artistry in the edit as there is in whatever it was being captured, you know, whether it's direct to camera or it's my art, it's like the edit can change everything. And so I like that part of
1: the process. Do you find that you're almost then just like having them have to like, are you directing them to redo it constantly? Cause you're like, Oh, I want this. Or are they like pretty dialed into what is a good, No, it
2: has to be a, it has to be a collaboration because I don't want to micromanage it. So I, the guy that I have right now is so good it's taken, I mean, I've worked with him for two years, and it's taken a lot of coaching down to like, yeah, I need an extra beat at the end of that. yeah, you know, and I and actually, can you be a little tighter? Remove my breath <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then this is an extra word. you can get rid of that. And now he knows he knows exactly, well, not exactly. he brings his own stuff in, which right. is great because that's what I want. I want someone better than me, yes, as an editor to like come in and, be able to bring something new out of it that I didn't even think of. So that's what that's what he does now for me, which is great. I know that's always
1: the trick I feel like of entrepreneurship. And we were talked about that one time when we were hanging out was that You always want somebody to come in that's actually better than you. Like if my skill set matches your skill set, then that's a problem here because we're never going to get better. We're just like we've uh, topped out at our performance. So exactly. Yes. You've had many different kind of phases in your art career, but I always like to kind of start from the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about like who young Josie was, because I think that forms so much of our uh, adult
2: selves is who our childhood selves were. <laughs> yeah. So it all starts with Joel and Kath up in the <laughs> Northwoods, Minnesota. My parents are like super countercultural hippies, like grew up in the seventies and moved up North to Northern Minnesota. I was about seven at the time. So I feel like I grew up in Grand Marais, 40 acres out in the woods, had...
0: well, you're up there, up there. So it's like not even Iron Range. This is like... Oh, no.
2: No. Yeah. On the, on the lakeshore, yeah, you know, deep so woods. A deep, very deep, you know, 20 minutes from the Canadian border. So yeah. real high, oh, wow. real high up in Northern Minnesota. And Grand Marais is a great little artsy town. And that would, we lived about 20 minutes from Grand Marais. And uh, my dad's a painter, brilliant landscape artist and real devoted to his craft. Although he never really was able to make it commercially, but incredible incredible work and so it was I was just around art all the time and of course they really valued that and then I was in public school but some of their crazy you know like it was back then it was really weird to be homeschooled and some of their crazy like Christian friends were like pulling their kids out of school and my parents are like well we can do that but of course their (laughs) friends actually got curriculums and stuff and my parents are just like we're just taking her out so it was in the middle of it was a Wednesday and they just came to Mrs. Krause's English class and said we're heading home. You never have to go back. And I never did. You know, I went to a year of high school and it was unschooling. I don't know if you've heard of this. This is a real no. thing, but unschooling is just basically letting your kids do whatever they want. And so this was like, you were in ninth grade then? And this No, is- no, I was in fourth grade.
1: Okay. Yeah. So in fourth grade, it just, you went, your parents took you out of school. Mm-hmm. And you were just free range. We will call it.
0: Free range. Oh, yeah. This is before like that book, The Free Range Children and before like Waldorf really took off maybe. Yeah.
2: My parents were very cutting edge. They didn't know they were, but they were cutting edge. And so then I think it's because my parents just aren't very organized. You know, they weren't like all their friends were doing it with like curriculums and they had school rooms in their houses and they, you know, like they did all the stuff. But my parents just were like, we had horses. There was art. I was a reader. So they just weren't very worried about me. They're like, well, she reads all the time and she's probably fine. So then, you know, so then it was just a very, very open, open childhood. Were you able to explore stuff, though? Because what's interesting
1: is you're not like one of one person who is actually extremely famous, Billie Eilish. She has a very similar timeline. Her parents actually homeschooled her, but she has said that that's been able because of that, she was able to dive deep into our focus areas at such a young age and truly develop that skill versus like a traditional schooling. You were just kind of like pulled into all of these different buckets was that similar for you were you able to kind of start diving into what your true passions were at a young
2: age yeah yeah i i they had this old piano and at first i i liked I, you know they were they brought me to piano lessons and then i got into it on my own and there was a point there where i was playing six hours a day or something wow. like i would just loved it and i'm sure i just discovered flow you know i just was like in the flow of playing piano Yeah. And I wanted to be a concert pianist, but I needed a I needed a real teacher for that. And I needed a real piano. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And the piano that we had was this old upright in a room that was not temperature controlled and that was like that. It was it wasn't ever gonna work. Right. So so then it was finally like true. Like it was it became apparent when there was eight or nine keys that didn't work on the piano and I didn't have the kind of teaching and coaching that I would have needed to get better In, in Grand Marie. I was like, well, maybe I'll switch it up. So then I wrote a novel. I
0: was probably 11 or 12. But you wrote a novel when you were 11 or 12. Uh,
2: (laughs) So then I was going to be a writer and it was a murder mystery novel set in Hawaii where I had never been. But, you know, I'd read a lot. So I was like, I can do this. And then uh, and then at some point in there, what happened, though, this is where my ego changed everything, because nobody wanted to read a novel by an 11 year old. And so I would be like, I wrote a novel. Do you want to read it? And people would be like. Oh,
0: <laughs> not really. They
2: yeah, even short stories. I couldn't get anybody to read what I was writing. But if I made art. The ageism in that. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, (laughs) nobody wants to read your stupid manuscript at whatever age you are. are, (laughs) Wait, who
0: were you giving these manuscripts to? Were these like friends or was this like you were literally going to publishers? Oh, no,
2: not publishers. Okay, I was like, like, my goodness. just people that my parents knew and Mm -hmm. usually adults, you know, usually adults. And I would try to get people to, you know, read them. And then people just, you know, they just, they were kind, but they weren't going to read it. So then I was realizing, like, if I want to get feedback. It has to be faster my dad was an artist i'm like well i should just be an artist so then as soon as i started drawing and painting then it was like you can show somebody it and they can immediately have feedback for you and it doesn't cost them a lot and then it's like i i get immediate ego (laughs) like great, somebody likes it you know and then and then i loved flow so i would just i started by doing self-portraits i had this mirror this broken mirror in my room and i would just do these graphite real emo self-portraits Every, you know, every night I just, I have a whole stack of them. They're fascinating, you know? And then I would also draw like the covers of Vogue magazines. I do, you know, faces, a lot of faces. So that's how it started.
1: Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think that's like really just interesting. So you were pretty much, you were doing these emo portraits. Like how old were you? And then like, I know that from obviously reading up on you and the internet, like you ended up going to college and everything. So like, what was that transition phase? Like, I'm actually very curious, like for somebody that was preschooled, so to speak, like, how did you even get into college? Like, I feel like you need all of these things to show, like, I've done the standard
2: issue. Well, yeah, they, back then they, I don't know what they do now, what the, what the policies are now, but back then you had to take the ACT and the SAT or the PSAT and you also had to do standardized testing at the school so you had to, you know the the way the laws were back then you had to have a licensed teacher present when you were taking the standardized test so that was every year you know mm-hmm. and so since neither of my parents were licensed teachers I had to go into school and take the standard standardized test and what was really interesting is the first year after I had to come back to the school all the kids are like we thought you died <laughs> 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 you just disappeared. We thought you moved. We thought you died. Like what happened? Like here I am taking the test. And my mom was like, we hadn't prepped for it. You know, it was like, I just had a year off. And, um, and she said, it doesn't matter. You can just fill out all the A's or just make a design, you know, it, you know, just do your best. It. We're not making you go back. It's just a thing that we have to do for the school, but don't worry about it.
0: Just fill in all the A's. Yeah.
2: Just fill in whatever you want. And it was two days. It was a two day testing process. So what did you do though? Oh, I, d- I did my best. And also, this is what's just nuts. I still can't get over this. But like prior to being taken out of school, I was a horrible test taker. I was an early reader. My, te- my teachers knew that I was intelligent enough and I did fine with regular classwork instruction, but just tests, I would, I would just kind of like my brain would blink out or something in tests. So then, um, and then I did horrible on standardized tests. And then I had a year off and then I came back in. My mom said, don't worry about it. Do whatever you want. And I like just filled it out. I, I,
0: you did your best. I did
2: my best. I mean, I just looked at the book and I filled in the answers, of, you know, the way I yeah. thought they should be. You know, like I wasn't goofing around. I really tried. And I scored 99th percentile.
0: Okay. This is so interesting. <laughs> right across
2: the board. And then every time I took a standardized test after that, I was always like, I think I got a, I don't know, a 28 or something on my ACT. I forget all the scores, but I was always very high on all that stuff. And, you know, as I progressed in high school, I would get the book, like, you know, the big study guides. I don't know if you remember that. And I'd go through them and what I, I liked those tests. I actually thought they were like, they weren't testing your knowledge. They were testing your logic. So it was almost like a riddle, like, because all the information would be there. You just have to, like, so I didn't have to actually know anything about geometry. I just had to know how to read the test.
0: Read the question.
2: Read the question.
0: This is explaining a lot about how I tested in high school, which was I could go in completely unprepared but if it was multiple choice, I always could pick the right answer. Absolutely. Because I was like, look, they're leading you to the they're answer. They're leading you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you could just figure it out by logic. So then so then the net result was that I had great test scores by the time I hit college age and it wasn't hard to get into college.
0: So I think it's interesting that it's this this idea of doing your best on this test. Cuz it seems like your parents took you out of school and then you became a concert pianist <laughs> <laughs> at 10. At 10. Cuz you were doing your best, you were just like free to do your best. And then you wrote a novel, and you were like, I don't know how to write a novel, but I'm going to do my best. I have the freedom to do it. And when you, as soon as your mom said, "I have, you have the freedom to just take this test, just do your best. Just take the test. You can write it in all A's. You can scribble on it, and you'll be fine. It gave you that confidence to just be like, I just have to do my best. And then you went into it being interested in just kind of like exploring the test and taking it to the best, as you, the same way you did with the piano, the novel, and then art at that point. I find that interesting. Is that something that you... You identify within yourself is that you kind of always just choose the challenge and you do your best with whatever challenge you're in.
2: Yeah, although I would describe it as curiosity, Mm -hmm. maybe. So I don't know that I, I don't think I would use the term doing my best in how I explore different things.
0: Curiosity is a good way to explain it. Yeah, I would say the same thing too.
2: Yeah, like free range curiosity. Because I don't, I'm not a very, I'm a get it done kind of person. I don't have a lot of perfectionism. You know, like done is better than perfect. So then doing my best isn't exactly. I understand what you're saying, but it's not like a mechanism in my psychology. But I think it's more like I liked studying for those dumb standardized tests uh-huh. because I was unpacking the mm-hmm. the code, you know, yeah. and so I didn't actually have to learn anything. Anything. Right. I just had to learn how the test was constructed. And I thought it was fun. It was like a riddle or something, you know? Right. hundred percent. And so it was my curiosity of like, Oh, can I get also getting better? Yes. Okay. Getting better is a big, getting better at something and being satisfied. Mm-hmm. You know, after I played the, a song a bajillion times and then knowing I really had it, you know, yeah. was really in you my fingers. It. I felt it. Yeah. Yep. And that's really rewarding for me. So that's why I would like, I can burrow down, Almost obsessively into th- into a specific thing because I love that sensation of getting better or getting competency yeah. or something. Yeah,
0: right. Yep. So those standardized tests essentially, it's like these little. Each question was like an unlock. You're unlocking the riddle. You're like, ooh, that one, that one, that one, and then getting ninety nine percent. Like that's
1: like amazing. I just like it's amazing, but then it also just has me equally as curious. You know, as a person from education, I've always been like, what if? We actually just let kids explore what they're truly passionate about. Like what would happen? That's why I think it was so interesting when I learned that about Billie Eilish because she was very much so like it's 10,000 hours, you know, like I got to do 10,000 hours when I was 15 versus a lot of people can't do that until they're 25.
2: Yes. So you went on to college. Where did you go? What did you study? So I was a declared artist at that point. So I went to my parents, my parents' college where they met Bethel University, which is a small liberal arts christian baptist school in saint paul and i did my five years there (laughs) and then uh took a few years off and went to grad school you know in my late 20s at the university of minnesota
0: so when did you discover organization because it sounds like your parent you said your parents weren't super organized so when did you discover was that your rebel was that how you rebelled you organized
2: well my my parents i've never really known them to have jobs i don't know how they did it you know like (laughs) Like we always had food. Yeah. I mean, we never had money, you know, like we always knew that, you know, money was tight, but I'm not sure how, I still don't know what they, what they're doing. Will forever be a mystery. I'm the only firstborn in my family. I'm probably the most alpha in my family. You know, like I'm the one that's like, get an Excel spreadsheet. Like, come on. Oh, and then I got my first job at 15, cleaning rooms at a local lodge. And I got my first paycheck. I'm sure I was making you know, six dollars an hour or something, and I got my first paycheck, and I was like, "Mom, Dad, there's this thing you can go somewhere and work, do what they ask you to do for a few hours. It's not too bad." And then they give you money. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's this incredible thing. And from then on, I was like, "Yes, <laughs> like, like I I was very very motivated at that point to like to make money." So I work. You know, we lived in a little tourist town, so I would work these you know, waitressing or cleaning rooms or something. And I work two full-time jobs, you know, and I just like, I just was like, I just need money. I had a great home life. You know, mm-hmm. my parents are amazing, but I was, al- it was also a little bit more chaos than I wanted. I wanted to control my own, I wanted to buy my own toothpaste. You when know? you so- realize
0: you can go somewhere on your own time and on that time, get paid to do something is very freeing at that age. I remember that for myself, I had like two or three jobs and I was like, look, I get to leave my house and go m- make money. I don't have to get an allowance or anything like that, I can go just make money.
2: I mean, money
1: brings freedom at the end of the day. Like, it allows you to do stuff. So were you pretty much like, were you 18 then when you went to Bethel, or were you even earlier? I was 17. 17? Mm -hmm. And then you were like, I'm out of here. Okay, so you you went to Bethel, you went to the U of M, and now you
2: have degrees. And then what did you do? So in between, when I got done with Bethel, I had a lot of friends who were graduating ahead of me, and they were great artists. And they'd come back and visit the art department and, oh, what are you making now? What's happening? And they're like, well, I got, you know, I got a house, but it's it's not very big. And I have a little area in my basement for art, but I haven't unpacked it yet. And I got a, I got a full-time job though. And I got a car and I got a nice couch and it was like, yeah. oh, okay. So people go to art school. And then they don't make art. I recognize that. (laughs) I went to art school. Yes. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) I did the, I was like, oh, I'm going to do the art educator route here. We're just going to do the art teacher route. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: I would refuse. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, this arena, no way. <laughs> and I it really, I had an artist's life modeled for me by my father because right. he was dedicated. He painted every day and he, he worked on a body of work and he is a great painter, you know, and he, he modeled that of making sacrifices. Uh-huh. He never really made any money. So it was I didn't go into making art thinking, "Oh, I'm in mean, it, This is gonna turn into a business." I'd never seen it modeled is that it an really? artist could make money. You but know? He showed
0: you what the practice yes, looked like. The practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: He showed me the practice, and so, um, so then I decided, you know, that I wanted to travel. I really was interested in travel. Yeah. So when I got when I graduated from undergrad, then I was like, I'm gonna travel and I'm gonna make art. Then I'm gonna come home and I'm gonna wait some tables and make a few bucks and live cheap and live in a loft somewhere and have a crappy car and have roommates and have space to make art. And that's going to be what I'm going to do. So that, so I tried, I went to like, I traveled to like 58 different countries or something. Oh man. Between, that's awesome. It was great. Yeah, it was amazing. Wait, what was the
0: timeline on this? So
2: this is like, I traveled a bit in school, so I spent some semesters abroad. And then when I was graduated, then between, it's probably like between 22 and I think grad school started when I was about 28. Maybe okay. So most of my twenties, I would just bounce in and out, you know. And then I, I, I got really into food and wine because I was living in the Twin Cities by then, and I, you know, waitressing was the best way to make money, yeah. Mm-hmm. Short of stripping, probably, you know. So <laughs> a lot like, because tips are real. And yeah. also, I think that was also where my arch- entrepreneurial itch got yeah. scratched because I realized I, if I am better at my job, more charming, more knowledgeable, faster, I will make more money. If I stay longer. I'll make more money. It's not, I'm not just getting the eight bucks an hour. I'll, you know, like I could always, because tips were, you know, that's changing slowly in the way we do tipping. Well, except that I heard that now they're charging, they're asking for tips on self checkouts. Did you see this? You know how they ask that's you at Starbucks? Whole. Now they're doing it at self checkout.
0: Oh, that's so weird. It's so confusing. It really muddies the water. <laughs>
1: really? You know, yeah, it, the tipping world is just getting a bit bizarre right now. And the it, the it will figure itself out because at some point people are gonna be like, okay, we
2: took this a bit too far, possibly y'all. So yeah. <laughs> so it was a way for me to have agency, you know, and yeah. to feel yeah. like if I work harder and work better, I'll make more money. So that was meaningful. I would never have consider myself an entrepreneur at that point, I had separated my pecuniary life from my art life. <laughs> Although I was doing all this stuff, I was trying to sell art and I did, you know, and I mm-hmm. was having exhibits and building my resume. And this is all brick and mortar, of course, at this point, because there was no, you know, the internet. the internet was, you know, just a little baby. At yeah. That point. It was probably
1: just like eBay, even at that point in time. Yeah, eBay was a thing that was, uh, yeah, you don't really sell your art. on eBay was not meant as like the art marketplace at the time.
0: I remember I graduated from college before Instagram was a thing, and I remember after college, like the year or so after college, it became a thing. And it, I just remember being like, "What is this going to be?" And then it was within two years, it was like the thing. I remember seeing it and be like, "Huh? Like, how did that?" And it, I saw how it changed the art world because out of school, I went and worked at a photography gallery, so photography was still this thing that was valued. But then, in within two years, that changed entirely. Everybody was a photographer in two years, and pe- the way people consumed images. It was just like a consumed thing.
2: Yep. I mean, I think in 100 years or 500 years, they're going to be like, that was the renaissance, you know, like right. the, the time we are in right now. And and I am old enough to have literally gone from not having an email because nobody had emails to getting my first email. And then, yeah, I mean, like I'm at the dawn of the age of Aquarius friends. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so true.
2: Are you technically Gen X or are you Millennial then? I am, is there another one? I think I'm like right on the cusp. Yeah, Xennial. I know, but that's the young, those are the young ones. Like, I,
1: oh, really? Xennial is like the right on the edge of X and Millennial. Cause I
2: was, I don't want to even say what year I was born, but I'm, I'm, for, I'm 47. So that, X. yeah, so that puts me solidly in X.
0: Does it? But I have, I think. Okay.
2: But I have a youthful heart. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I think it's so profound, like what you said, because like I very much so like
1: didn't grow up. I remember like getting the computer in the house, but I think it is just like what we've experienced and how much has changed in the world of like being an artist and then also in business like has just completely changed. I mean, if you looked at like textbooks, like from when you were in school, I mean, they're like obsolete beyond obsolete like i mean yeah anybody that studies marketing i'm always like whatever you're studying is gonna be different in one year from now like just understand concepts you know but yeah
0: i think that's the thing i think about with education today is how do they keep up because i feel like every six months i'm learning something brand new that's like changed something from six months ago that that's no longer even relevant anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at this time you're like bebopping around, you're doing this, like what type of, like, what type of art are you even doing at this point in time as a very much like, you know, like we've never even touched on that. Like, what yeah. Type of, we- yeah.
2: <laughs> so I was really imprinted by my dad who was a, he would, he painted landscapes. I, n- I never really got into landscapes, but I would. I was painting in oils and I was doing cityscapes. Er. But they were re- they were photorealistic-ish, yeah. you know, similar to my dad's work, which is a pretty true representation of a scene. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I would work from a photograph and they ended up being kind of flat. And I don't know, they're, they're kind of nice paintings. I like them. But then when I was in grad school... Um, I was getting some very, very good critique, which was that my, you know, Edward Hopper was doing what I was doing a hundred years or, right. you know, 80 years ago or something. And he was much better than me, frankly, yeah. you know, and it was like, well, so Josie, what are you bring in new to the table? You know, <laughs> and I, I mean, I got a lot of critique and some of it liked and some of it I didn't, but that particular one I kind of knew was right. And I also knew that I think it, I was, um, I don't think I'm a very original thinker, actually. I think that I am motivated by other people and motivated by impressing people <laughs> like ego ego is yeah. strong you know right. and wanting ego so is it, a thing ego a thing and wanting you know wanting to get my dad's approval because I was painting kind of like him and and having that and and that skill of yeah. being able to paint representationally was important for me but in grad school I was like it became clear that it, it wasn't me right it wasn't really me and so then I started doing collage work I found these old house like 1980s house beautiful magazines with really cool colors it was really high quality paper and a beautiful color in there and so I made these collages and they were like my private my private project that I actually because collage, especially in my, you know, high-end fine arts art program, yeah. everything, right. even painting was a little suspect for for this program I was in because everything was conceptual. And, you know, it was like making an actual object was like suspicious. Making something beautiful was frowned upon. Very frowned upon. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, so, and so then I started making these beautiful, beautiful collages out of the house, beautiful magazines and the National Geographic. And I was hiding it. Because I didn't, I felt like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't legitimate art.
0: Right? They're like, write this one word.
2: if your whole entire basis is like, you wanting this bit of approval,
1: you know, like that ego and everything like that. And you're like, if I share this, I'm going to be shunned from the group because this is a very true thing. Like in art, like, like education and like bachelor's and master's programs, like there is a, you fit in this mold. And if you're outside of that mold, you're in the out group and like, you are shunned upon. Like it is like the stigma, it is so real in these programs that it makes sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They always want you to make something super obscure and then write like a book about why like explaining what it means versus just making a thing that people can understand yeah
1: yeah i always remember in my bachelor program like the professor was like the gallery is the enemy and i was like so how do you make a living then like i don't understand like this is like these are fine fucking concepts but at the end of the day you need to live
2: and they're just not giving you these
1: like foundational pieces you know
2: no, all. and not only not giving you the foundations, but also actively acting against the, you know. Yeah, like
0: dissuading you from dissuading actually thinking you, about how you're going right. to make money with the work that you're making. Yep.
2: There was a, there. one of my peers in grad school was making these really beautiful, delicate cut paper, almost like sculptures. They were mm-hmm. wall mounted, but they were, they were so gorgeous, you know, really, really incredible. And they were, they were huge. And I was in a critique with her and somebody said, they were talking about, you know, displaying them or transporting them and it's because she had a gallery that was interested in in showing them because they were incredible and and the prof that was in the room was like oh we don't need to think about that we don't need to talk about that and it's like okay fine we're talking about the meaning and the context of the work but also are you going to be able to take it out of your studio without it disintegrating right. yeah. you know like if if somebody wanted to buy it is that even possible like, like a,
0: yeah ephemeral's fun ephemeral's
2: fine if you're Andy Goldsworthy and you take a photo of it you know Yes, <laughs> like, 100% <laughs> So then that was that was the always the tone you know which I, hopefully these programs are changing a little bit because of the way the world's changed. And I think that a lot of, a lot of the higher ed art programs are adding professional practices and, yeah, you know, hopefully because otherwise yeah, I actually don't know. I mean, I've always
1: hoped that as well, but I think
0: they are because I had a lot of feedback after I left school about how I felt unfair. It was for like the group of people that I graduated with or at least my generation, how unfair it was that they poo-pooed the financial aspect of like the business aspect of, of being an artist and how I like after school, I left and went to New York and started working at a gallery and realized like the only reason these people are here is because they had a drive to be here in this gallery. And this isn't something people talked about when we are in school. They had a drive to make money and that's why they're in this gallery now. And I was like that, but they only knew that because where they were being taught was money. It was driven by it.
2: Yeah. Well, also, we have a drive to make money because it's part of the human contract. Yeah. Like, we have to make money. It, we can't just float around on our glory cloud, like painting with the angels. Like, it no, doesn't we have work to, that way. Yeah, we know? have to get
0: a studio. I think that was the thing, too, is like, it felt unfair. I said to them, I, I said, it's unfair that you guys were like, here's this beautiful studio and this space to work in. And then you're done with school. And they're like, now you have to go get that. But don't worry about making money. And I was like, but I have to pay rent on that space. Or I have to buy, I, I buy $250,000 worth of tools to even have. Any of this. So, how am I going to do that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like we built this society on a capitalist society, which people have pros and cons to. But the thing is that in that society, you get to have choice. Like you have agency to go and do whatever you want and build. But because you have that agency, you have to then create money to go and have those choices and those freedoms. And that's just the cycle. Right.
0: And I think the thing that they were worried about is that you would, it would influence your artwork. So, this is something that I wanted to ask you because I heard you talk about it on your podcast, which was, you're you're also simultaneously in the process of creating stuff and basically to make money but you're also doing it in a way where you're doing it purely right so it's something it's like on instagram you don't want to be like the next instagram like the thing that everyone's doing like pouring paint and doing something like that but you also are a person who's making those same trends right so how do you how do you parse that out it's essentially like artists are making something but then they have to market it afterwards but it has to come from a pure place
2: pure pureish,
0: Pure-ish. Pure-ish. <laughs> right? No. Pure.
2: Well, I mean, I sent Larissa a text about yeah. this because, I mean, yeah. what a great question. Can, we, t- can r- we talk for
1: like seven or eight hours? You were like, let's talk about this on the podcast. And then also like, let's talk about it. And I was like, that one's really deep. Like it's yeah. super deep. deep. I mean, I will say, this is what you texted me. How does a creative entrepreneur work with market trends and forces while simultaneously creating
0: market trends that was the question i was trying to get to
1: i mean which i think you really summed it up but i mean i think that is like this is the chicken or the egg question of of being a force of creativity in the world
2: yeah so i mean i think i i was talking to a colleague of mine from my grad school days he was actually having me speak to his class which is cool cuz he's like all right Josie seems to be doing something where she's actually making money as an artist so yeah. she's a good resource to talk to the undergrads and so and she and he said something like so, when did you get into making your commercial art? Ugh. I was like, I don't think that's a compliment the way you're using 100%. it, right? Like, right. And I, uh, it's kind of not incorrect, I guess, because I actually do make art to sell it. But the term has a judgy statement in mm-hmm. it. The, the term has a little bit of a judgy statement, yeah, especially from that context, you know. So it it made me think, like, well, what is commercial art? Like that, it it has a different, you know. But but I ultimately. I think something that's true for any artist in any moment, unless you're Emily Dickinson and you just don't care, you're making poems Mm -hmm. and you don't want anyone to read them ever. It's only your own process. And she literally said... Please burn these after I die, and they didn't. So, I, is it even like ethical for us to read Emily Dickinson? I don't know, but like, but she, you know, she did it. She did not care about other people being exposed to her work. Most artists do want other people to be exposed to their work. You know, most artists are, you know, this, certainly there's a private element of like personal processing and just personal pleasure. But then there also is this like, but I also want to share. I mean, I had that drive very strong because I was like yeah. trying to get people to read my yeah. manuscript, yeah. you know. And I, I had stumbled through different kinds of experiences until I could find the one, which happened to be visual art, that people could respond to immediately. So that drive was very strong with me to share. And so then it's like, sharing your work is about communication. (laughs) And that means communication is a two-way street. So you're in a Dance, you know, right, and then asking for money for the thing that you made is kind of the ultimate energy exchange, yeah. And and it is this relationship, you know, it's absolutely this relationship with the maker and the and the buyer or the collector, mm-hmm. and that's the way it's ever been, you know, like it's always the ba- way it's been for artists, unless yeah. ex- with the exception of the Emily Dickinsons out there or the hobbyists that you know they just do it for fun. But it's like if you're a professional artist you are necessarily in a position of having to be confronted with the market and the audience, you know? Right. And even the my art professors that aren't necessarily making commercially viable art, they're still trying to appeal to critics and they're still trying to get write-ups in magazines yeah. and they're still trying to get shows in, at the MoMA or wherever, you know? And it's like, it's, it's a different field that they're playing in but it's the same thing Mm -hmm. it's about creating that relationship and and appealing appealing to people capturing people's emotion or their their curiosity or their enthusiasm or what have you and so something that i've been coming back to a lot is the that famous elizabeth gilbert ted talk forever ago where she talks about the genius visiting you so it's it's not the kind of western renaissance idea of like the artist is the genius but more like the genius is the gnome that swings by your studio every once in a while and sprinkles fairy dust on your project. Kind of like
0: the muse. Like
2: the muse, yeah. And so I have definitely experienced something like that because I make a lot of stuff. Some of the stuff lands with my audience and some of it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I'd like it both equally, but I put my effort towards the stuff that's landing with the audience, you know? So it's kind of like, so I will try to funnel my attention towards the stuff that seems to be engaging with people that, following my work uh-huh. and I think that that it could be problematic you know like I could get into fan art or something I could probably get a lot of people that would love it if I made a bunch of Taylor Swift fan art you know it <laughs> I don't say I, I don't think I haven't considered that because I have but <laughs> but it's um but so then finding that true making sure it's true and resonant to my own artistic I have to actually like it I have to like making it you know although it's the fact is sometimes it is a little factory you know it isn't like i do i'm like okay people are liking this right now i'm gonna pound out a bunch of them because and it's you know i can get into flow listening to you talk about you putting together the things that you put together and like having this like kind of
0: yeah it's a flow and it's a flow it was something i even like in my art practice at school i realized the thing i continued to do was my my projects always were these like mass productions at a small scale so I do like the same thing 200 times as an action and that was how I created work and I was like cuz I found these like meditative places so it's like I was about to say that I was like but there is something beautiful about finding something that people like and being like I'm going to create a little art factory cuz you get to go over and over and over and learn as you're doing it basically in this flow state
2: mm-hmm. yes yeah and I love that that's probably how I built my business is because I like to do that mm-hmm. you know i think some people they really get bored maybe but
0: yeah some people do
2: I, mean, I think you're just like, what? It's like you're learning your process too. It's the
1: 10,000 hours. It's like, you know, because you're doing it and then you notice something. I'm sure like you've changed your mediums over time. And so then you're like, oh, what if I did this or whatever? There's and a then, lot of what if. Yeah. A lot, a lot of what if. Yeah. It's just experimentation. It's like you're almost like a scientist and an artist all at the same yes. time. So Yes. Yes. Yes.
2: Yes. 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 And, you know, it's really interesting because trends change, you know, like I'll make something for a while that people are just going crazy over and I'll sell out shop updates in 20 minutes. And then a year later, it's like, yawn, nobody right. cares about that. And it's like, why? Like, what happened? Like, <laughs> I don't understand. They like got something else now, you know? I mean, I think it's a little bit of like, there's too
1: many factors. It's not a controlled experiment it is because like that, I feel like a lot of business owners are experiencing right now is they were like, oh my gosh, like during the pandemic, I was hot shit you know like I was having a great time and I've heard a lot of people now are like what once sold out isn't and I mean I think there's a couple of factors at play which is like consumer demand does change also like people's power you know, like buying power has changed as well also people's feelings on social media have changed I think that it's you know there's too many factors you can't control that experiment but it's like acknowledging that a lot of factors have changed but that's the beauty of it, too, is that you get to evolve, you know, like, you know, the S-curve of economics and it's like two, so many factors are changing. But now you get to reinvent yourself within that and figure out your next part of it, which I think is interesting. So,
2: yes. Yeah. And and it's it has to do with being, as an artist, it has to do with being resilient because... You know, if if I have five shop updates to sell out and then one of them is like, you know, then it's like, oh, well, you know, and yeah. there's emotions. The ego. Right. And, the ego yeah. and it's like, it's over. It's over. And I sometimes, like, one of my big fears is that this is all just a fluke. Yeah. You know, like, 100%. somehow people have, fo- you know, they found me on Instagram and one day they're going to wake up and be like, who is this bitch? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> she's dumb. Right. All she cares about is rainbows.
0: It's scary because sometimes that can be self-fulfilling the more... It- times you tell yourself that story, mm-hmm. the more times you like seek out that comfort of like the validation. It is and these like slow, small points of validation where like, look, somebody unfolded me because they think I'm I'm stupid. And it's like keeps going and going. So you have to be careful to not to curb that and keep your eye focused on the positive validation. Mm-hmm. Because that's how you grow.
2: Yeah. Or even to take it one step further is because keeping my eye focused on positive validation may turn me towards Moving away from this authenticity thing, you know, so that it's kind of like I've been thinking a lot about, um especially as things are changing, as Larissa was saying in, the, in this moment that we're in. I've been thinking a lot about the power of intuition yeah. and like kind of sniffing out because so much of it is like it is a, the relationship with the audience, and you can do a minimum viable product to test it, mm-hmm. but. Ultimately, some things, even the minimum viable product are kind of (laughs) big, you know, they're going to take time and effort to develop the way you want to develop them. And it's like, sometimes you just have to do it, you know, based on just gut. I mean, I've always said like it's a quote, but it's like the doing is the
1: learning. Like yeah. you just will not like if you're. I think that's like the beautiful thing, and I very much identified when you were like, I don't also have a, any perfectionism in me. I'm like, I just want to learn and do the process because I've known. And getting it out there is how you're going to get that consumer feedback and know like, do I have product market fit? Do people like this product? You know, because if you constantly craft it in your own silo, it, people might fucking hate it at the yeah. end of the day. And you, you got it to this point that. You you feel it's perfect, which maybe that is, there's some power in that being like, I really care about this product. But if your end goal is also to make a living off of it, like you do need product market fit at some point in two, you can kind of need those two truths at the same time. Yeah. So for our audience, I think it's important because we've done our research and we kind of know who you are, but you kind of mentioned this thing of rainbows. So you kind of went from collage and doing these really intense collage artworks where they were resined and they were layered I, I mean, and that was a good chunk of your career. And then you like did a pretty intense like pivot, you know, into this like rainbow motif. Like what was that? Like,
2: how did that happen? Death.
1: Yeah. Man.
2: <laughs> Death and despair and tragedy. Yeah. So I married late in life and we had our GG, who is now 10. And then we thought we'd go for another child. And then the wheels kind of fell off the bus. So I had multiple pregnancy losses, including a full term stillbirth which was really intense. There was like a two or three year period there where I also had a toddler and I was an old, old mom. Mm -hmm. And I was not a happy pregnant person. Like I was sick all the time, you know? So it was a really, really rough time. And I'm so fortunate that my husband had had it. He now works with me, but at the time he had a stable corporate job. So I was able to just kind of like lick my wounds and take care of Gigi and, you know, like process all the physical stuff that was happening and the the grief and the loss and and all of that but in that cycle also you know just been like i am done doing these stupid craft fairs and like because i'd schlep i mean larissa knows this story you know like schlepping all your stuff down to you know it's somewhere and hanging it on the wall and then standing there for the full weekend and smile on your face with a smile on your face and i actually like i miss those a little bit but you know like At that moment, you were like, "Yeah, you know what? It was never profitable. You know, like I would sell stuff, but not in a way that made it like, you know, like a marketing thing. It was a marketing thing, and and then I was like, also trying to still kind of follow the ladder that had been set before me from my MFA experience of like getting into like more you know prestigious galleries and you know grants and all that stuff, and it was just like you know just like not fun, hundred percent, and hard, and and I was like, I'm gonna go back to writing." I'm done with this art crap. So, when we lost our last pregnancy, which happened to be on November 6th when Trump was elected. That was Oh no. <laughs> so, I remember it very well. We lost the last pregnancy. Look. And then we had decided Josie cannot keep being pregnant. This is too hard. yeah you know, we got pregnant very easily, but we just for whatever reason weren't able to keep the pregnancy. So, it was like, we're done with this. We can't do it anymore. So we knew that was the last time. And then I was also at that same time, I'm sure it's all connected, but I was like, I'm also not going to be an artist anymore. And I knew I was creative. It wasn't like, I forego all creation. It was more like, I don't want to climb. I don't want to set my ladder up against this house because it's not going anywhere. And I look up the ladder and I don't like the results. Even if I have success, I'm not sure I like the results. I wasn't looking at the internet at that point. I was just looking at like brick and mortar kind of like, I don't want to be a college professor, you know, like that. And that was kind of the direction.
0: So the definition at that time of what you thought an artist was, was not something you wanted to be.
2: Yeah, ultimately. And then I just didn't feel like I'd found my people. And it was just mm-hmm. like, it, it wasn't fun, you know? And so started writing a zombie apocalypse novel, which is really good. I just pulled it out the other day and I'm like, dang, yeah. I gotta finish this.
0: <laughs> yeah, put that up, up on Amazon. You'll make some <laughs> passive income from it. Right.
2: I didn't finish it. So it's it's in or the early
0: stages, but I'm like, this is weird. Yeah, cool. you have a good pen name. Right, I mean, honestly. Yeah.
2: What's the pen name?
0: Josie Lewis. Oh, just, Josie Lewis, right. Seriously, it's a good name.
2: So I was uh I worked on that for a while and then but I was making these watercolor paintings, which again are not, you know, watercolor like collage is not fine art. You hey. know, it's not high art. It was like just me doodling, you know, while Gigi was napping. You know, it was one of the, it was an easy medium to just kind of like fiddle around with. And because I was in such wrenching grief and physical pain, and it was just the worst, I, got, I fell into these like flow states doing that. And it was so powerful for me during that time. I'd always experienced flow. I was, you know, I'm like a flow person, but I never needed it like I did then, you know, and so then that brought me down this whole, you know, line of inquiry about what flow is, which is we, we can't talk about it the second, but it's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really oh, good. Yeah. You guys know all about flow, but just
1: go find Rick Rubin and go in the whole flow. Book and everything like that, yeah, yeah.
2: And I did a whole TED Talk on it, so you can oh, look, yeah. look at the Josie, Josie Lewis, TEDx. rick Rubin's and gonna take you forever. Just go right. find yeah. Josie Lewis. a yeah. slow talker. Yeah, slow and talker. I, yeah, <laughs> he's brilliant, but he's slow. Entertaining, but that's ten right. hours. We've got yes. ten minutes for right. you. Here, yeah, we got ten minutes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I I was doing these watercolor paintings, and then because I'm a curious person, I was like, what happens if I just film it? And then I had 232 Instagram followers, and I was I made a hyperlapse video of the watercolor rainbow. Because I just would follow my palette. I w- I need, it needed oh. to be so simple. So it wasn't like I was trying to paint rainbows. It was just like, my palette comes in this order. I'm going to paint in this order. And so then I just was painting these rainbow hexagons. And then I did a hyperlapse and I put it on the internet. And it was right when Instagram had opened up video as a, as a means to mm. communicate. Because really? it had all been square photos up until that point. And then you could do a square video. And so then that's how, how I learned how to do video editing because I was like, oh, okay, I gotta make this a square, like interesting. So and then I figured out how to do hyperlapse and then they went viral. You know, those those crazy watercolor videos immediately went viral. And then that, you know, opened up the whole a whole new realm of the interwebs and a couple of years i had had, you know, I had millions of followers and billions of views and, and I didn't have a business still at mm-hmm. that point because I hadn't figured it out. I um, didn't know what to do. You know, it was like, well, what do I do now? Like, and then I started to build an actual, you know, business of selling things from Instagram was the, the base of it. But then, you know, went from there.
1: So very much so it was, you had several years where you were making any profit or anything you were just kind of, were you still like just, there for the process? Were you still kind of in that grieving process and just trying to find this space during that? Was that kind of like two things were true at the same time?
2: Yeah. I was really intrigued and interested by the fact that a lot of people were responding to what I was making by saying, you know, I got a DM from someone who said, I was in a car accident. I lost both my legs and I've been really, she's 17. I've been so sad, and it's been horrible, but I started watching your videos, and then my mom brought me some watercolors, and I've been watercolor painting, and it's been really amazing. Yeah. It was just like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> like, is there anything i could make that's just pretty or you know even just like good art that could be as powerful as that yeah like helping the girl you know yeah to like work through this huge tragedy in her life like
0: you were sharing flow state with people
2: i was sharing flow state and i and people say that all the time they're like i fall into the rabbit hole of your feed josie and they're watching these i mean it's a two-hour process and i have it in 14 seconds yeah but then they just watch a bunch of them all in a row and they just Get this like mini flow from the experience it's it's I, real i mean i've done it for it on your feed and it's been it is it's a it's a true thing yes yeah it's really really far out and bizarre and so then it's like i'm creating this experience for people which is i guess what art does but it's some it's something new you know that is really fascinating and once i tried to um i tried to like submit my art videos to it was like the jerome one of the grants oh, in town pal, here uh, yeah you no, know no, the jerome foundation yeah the Jerome one Foundation. i was
1: like nope that's
2: not right yeah, i mean minnesota is a great state for grants you know so i used to apply to all of them and i got some of them but i was like well i'm doing these cool videos and people like them and maybe and and there is such a thing as art you know films so maybe this would qualify and they rejected the application. They didn't even accept the application. They said, this is, this is just process.
0: I think that's something that, uh, the art world kind of gets wrong all the time is they, they teach us how to, how to work outside the box all the time, but then they build a new box for us to exist in. And then we're like, how are we supposed to do anything with this?
1: I think it's so interesting too, because like, I've been studying so much, like I love Walt Disney and really studying Walt Disney. And so often like people, like the upper class society Rejected Walt Disney, like they just were, did not want anything to do with him. They were like, "You were wrong," and like, we now know where Disney is and the mass appeal. Like, I think it's so interesting is that we're seeking approval from these quote unquote people that hold this status symbols and markers, and I think we need to remind ourselves so often that these people are no different than anybody else. It's just literally one person that you're trying to appease. And for some reason, we say this represents the masses. Guess what really represents the masses? The masses.
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yes. Yeah. Or if you do what everybody else is doing, you're going to get what everybody else gets. And like, really, you want to build your own thing.
2: Mm-hmm. 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 That's good.
1: So you're a couple years in and you're making this. And then what was the moment where you were like, I think I have something here. Like, What was your first step into being like, I think I can make money beyond just like, I'm creating content for people and this is doing something for me. And like that statement from that girl is like so profound. But what, at what point are you like, I think I could actually make money off of this. Like, what was your first step?
2: Yeah. So I was dinging around with uh, resin and I figured out this weird thing where you d- drip a certain kind of ink in the resin and it, when it dries, it creates these like mushroom forms. a really cool looking. Yeah. I'd never seen anybody do it before. And so then, and the internet went crazy for those things. Resin, it was, resin was having a moment back then. And so, so everybody loved these, I called them Petri because they looked, they were round and they looked like little Petri dishes. And, and so I started selling them cheap. I mean, they were really, they're these two-inch things. I'd make 500 of them or something and I'd sell them for 35 bucks.
1: Oh yeah.
2: And I would just sell out these shop updates really fast. And, and I did, you know, I started kind of small and it was honestly, I was like, stunned when they when they would sell, you know like just like people are buying these like for $35 like <laughs>
0: like wow like $35
2: 35 wow $35 but then I just kept doing it and it kept you know and then and then after a while like I got tired of resin and then I started uh, well I think it was the next thing was um the chunky paintings where I was just painting really thick with acrylic paint rainbows and then those were selling out you know and then I and then I iterated on that and then those were selling out and then And then somewhere in there, I had an assistant that was like, you really should have some courses, Josie. And so we launched my first course, my watercolor course, watercolor for rebels, in December
0: 2019.
2: Whoa! So what about a moment, right? <laughs> yeah. to, to be poised with you're, you're the know, one person that got ahead of it. Every, right? All of us yeah. were, like catching up. We we're like, oh fuck. <laughs> so then, uh, so then, since then, I've launched multiple courses. And the great thing about courses is, a, I'm a born teacher, so I like I like it. I actually yeah. like it. And then also, I it's scalable. You know. And so that's brilliant. And then, and then uh, you know, I, you know, like I'm a big enough influencer that people copy me. And at first, that was like hard for me. But then I like was like, well, let's lean in. Like, yeah. if people want to copy me, why don't I just be like, oh, well, how about here's the, buy my course and you can learn exactly how I do it. And and now I've gone another level up where people can go to Michaels and get my art supplies. Yeah, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> like, go ahead. Here it is. Open door you could just do what i do and have fun and i know. love
0: that you leaned into that yeah cuz i i know it like strikes it like strikes straight at the heart of your ego when right. like someone copies you you're like ooh i don't like that but even though it's supposed to be like this the best form of flattery
2: right but yeah the market share is important right so yeah. it's kind of like there's always that that kind of like i mean i'm sure you run into that all the time larissa like that's got to happen all the time and Jewelry. It doesn't. I mean, I think what's interesting is like,
1: it was interesting because we started manufacturing overseas and people were like, Are you worried that you're going to get copied? And I'm like, I can either worried about getting copied or I can keep on innovating because I only have so much energy and resources. And that's where I think what's interesting is like, instead of you being like, Oh my gosh, people are 100% natural reaction is people are copying me. But then instead of staying there, which I think a lot of people get stuck in and they never leave it you said, how can I use this? Like you very much so changed your mindset is like, what is the opportunity here? Like, how can I change the story? And you just did that. Yeah. Which I think is like, I'm speaking to like your power of being able to like innovate in there. And so I think that's interesting is like literally from such pain, you have now like really kind of like created something out of it where i think you can have like these two truths in that process and everything to kind of this like michael's thing and that was like i think for a lot of people in our audience like how did that journey come to be like michael's just doesn't like people know like you have end caps in all of the michael stores across the country right now with your own branded art supplies like it's not like a small like you have like you know just a couple paintbrushes or anything like that like how did that come to be you know like that's i think for some people like their dreams are always to like i want to be in target or whatever you know how did you do like how did that happen Yeah.
2: So the first thing I did was I got a connection with um, Buffalo Games, which makes games and puzzles. Uh And they created a line of um, jigsaw puzzles, Josie uh Lewis art jigsaw puzzles. So those are in, you know, you can get them at Target and Walmart and all the places. When did those come out? About three years ago. It was just after 2020, so okay. wasn't that was one like, wasn't ahead. I was that was, like, did was this all I know in 2019. In oh, <laughs> I know, right, right. Everybody remembers good. the puzzle. Series. Right, Let's yeah. So I was a little behind that that big that big wave, but you know, I I kind of caught on at the back end of that, and so then that's still going. So then I was like, oh, this licensing game. This is pretty awesome. And then I had a connection with a company that brands art supplies and. I've been friends with them for a long time and, you know, I bought some wholesale stuff from them, that sort of relationship, a small company in, on the East coast. And then they were like, Hey, do you want to do a kit? I'm like, sure. And then it, they shopped it around and Michael's was like, Oh, we really like Josie. We'd like to do more. And so then I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think there's about 60 SKUs now nice. um, just launched. It's, it's just a month ago and it's uh on twelve hundred stores, US and Canada. It's very exciting.
0: Congratulations.
2: Yeah. Thanks. So it's a it's a I didn't do any manufacturing for this. This is a this is like a brand endorsement, you know. So I've been instrumental in, you know, of course my name and picture is on the box and and it's my style and my my vibes. Yeah. But they have a whole team. They have designers and they have the contacts with the manufacturers and and of course the contacts with Michaels or whatever store and then they, you know, so they're they're managing all that. For me, which is great because I don't have time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing too, is I think so much
1: people feel like they have to build everything. Yeah. But you actually don't have to build everything. There's actually a lot of alternative options out there that will help you generate revenue. And I think that's like where you found so many of these different ways of generating revenue versus the standard, I make art. I sell art to you. Like you know, you can just live in that cycle for your entire career. And you were like, "No, nah, I'm just going to kind of do these other
2: things." Yeah, and it was. I mean, I think that the art supplies at Michael's it was the final nail in the coffin of grad my grad school training. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I mean, really, because I've uh, the you've Disneyed everybody, right? This come I've had a relationship with the the CEO of this company for a long time, mm-hmm. and he brought this up to me. I don't know, eight years ago or something. And I was like, no, like I was such a snob. Like I was like, no, like Bob Ross, like, you know, like whenever I, you go to the art supply store and there's an artist with it, you know, it's always like, it, I don't know, it just doesn't seem l- legit or something. Like it always feels like cheesy. So it, it let me rephrase, it felt cheesy. Like it felt like it wasn't a legitimate fine, high art, you know, endeavor. And now I'm like, actually, my purpose on this earth might be to help people make art. Yeah, that might be it. My own art is fun for me, and if I sell it, great. But I actually feel like my actual calling could would- be broader. Yeah, and and my impact. I th- I still think back to. I mean, I got two messages today of people that were. T- you know, one girl was in a um in a psychiatric ward, and they had my puzzles. She was there for six weeks, so it must have been really serious said it was a horrible time but she did my puzzles if then she went got home and she bought all of my puzzles that she could find because she it was so helpful for her and it's just like, I, like, yeah, like seriously that is so amazing you know that seems to me that's that's not i don't know if it's e- that wouldn't be ego so much it's more like i You know, like I am so honored to have that, you know, to have that role in somebody's healing, like healing journey. Like, oh my gosh, like that seems more, um, maybe a more truer calling you know, for me right now, the way I'm thinking about it right now.
1: I mean, I think that's where it's like, what seems true is that you kept on just following your gut through this entire process. And through that, you found your calling. But by doing that and trusting yourself, you actually have connected so many people to themselves in a way that just probably wasn't even something that was aware to you. But I think that's like the most beautiful thing is that throughout this whole entire process, you were like, Oh, I want like this positive praise, but you still went back to your intuition and that led you to this beautiful place that you got to be with in your career, which I think is really amazing. Yeah, I've got it. You gotta fight for the intuition. You do. It's a it's a real struggle. I've known personally, every time that I don't listen to my intuition, really bad shit happens. And then I have to learn really hard life lessons. And then they get really ingrained in me. Um, and I'm like, got it, universe, understand.
0: But even those life lessons can sometimes they could put little handcuffs around your wrist too because you're like i did that that thing that one time then it ruins it forever
1: it's true i think it's acknowledging it it was um oh gosh the airbnb um guy he was really talking about it but i think it is like you do need to have those life lessons because they do teach you stuff like you do need unfortunately to have such hard shit happen in your life because i think it then shows you because and it also shows that you're pushing yourselves to live on the outside edges to have those human experiences
0: so how do you you said you, you need to fight for your intuition. How do you fight for your intuition?
2: Um, I, it, getting up early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's a real thing. Getting up early, walking in nature. I mean, it's, it's simple. It's like dumb stuff, like drinking enough water. I mean, it sounds kind of, it sounds, it's not sexy, but that's, like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. What it, that's what it, it's like being quiet, uh-huh. you know? It's paying attention to the signs. It's, it is watching the things that keep percolating, you Uh know, like something that happens to me a lot is I'll get messages that repeat. Uh And if I hear something twice in a short amount of time, it's like from different sources, it's like, oh yeah, I better pay attention to that, you know? And so it comes from outside, it comes from inside, it comes from dreams. It's like, so then it's, I think it's about like, you have a a picture of the moon Uh and I think of the moon as my symbol of my intuition and it's like the reflected light and it takes some, it's a very platonic Yeah. view of like the shad the cave shadow and the light. And you can see anyway, philosophy, but I like the, the, when we're looking at the moon, we're seeing this reflected light, but it takes, it's quiet and it's dark and it takes some thought and stillness right? and courage mm-hmm. because usually the moon is not like, go, go, go. It's happening right now. This is the thing. You know, the, it's much more like a whisper.
0: Right. And it has to, it changes slowly over time. So you don't notice the moon just goes from full to to black. It gets, you see it slowly change. Uh-huh. So that's something you do. It's like you you take almost intentional, but you feel through these actions over time.
1: Yep. They talk about it a lot. It, um, they call them clarity breaks. And I think it's very important because I think as entrepreneurs, boy, can you fill a day? Like, you know, it's very easy to fill your entire day and be like, I was really productive. But through that productivity, you can actually really lose sight of like your North Star and listening to your intuition. So it's like, it's actually extremely important to carve out those clarity breaks because that's the only way that you're going to be able to just like think. And it's like, you should not have, it should be in nature. It really should be like quiet, like 1000% listening to a podcast. I'm super sorry, people is not a clarity break. Like, it's just like, you're getting stuff, but you're actually like, you're getting input still. Yes. You're not being yes. super reflective yes. or anything.
2: Although I will say about the podcast and about learning is that there is this thing that happened. I listen as you do. Yeah, we're all avid podcast right learners. and books podcast and, community. And I mean, I'm a learner, you know. So i i have I have coaching programs, and I listen to t- loads and loads of gurus talk about all the all the things, you know. And and a lot of it is good information. And then sometimes there's like the. Um, My friend went to this church where they talked about the unction and the unction is when the spirit comes, which I just love this concept (laughs) of the, the unction. Yeah. And so sometimes I just love the word, right? I know the word. Yeah. So sometimes I'll be listening to a podcast and somebody will say something that's, true like capital yes. t true and it's a message for me it's the unction you yes, know it's like oh, the spirit lands whatever you know i'm using i feel yeah. that. language that's hard you know to to describe what it is but it's kind of like that guy said something
0: yeah that's, for, that's it's like literally like the yeah. clouds part and it's like the, sh- the light shining right on you in that moment you're like oh that's for me Ooh, yeah. yeah
2: yeah it's like oh that is speaking directly to my situation and and that doesn't always happen but that that unction of, and that's what I was talking about. Like when you hear something a couple of times from different sources, it's like, oh, that's probably the unction, you know, <laughs> it's probably the unction.
0: So what do you do in those moments? Do you write them down? Oh yeah. Do you reflect on it then in that moment or do you write it down and then reflect on it later?
2: Well, I, I often try to think about the application, you know, so, so what is, you know, if I keep getting a message, like what's often, there's a riddle that has to be unpacked and, it does take a journey of understanding what that means. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's pretty clear, like I'll know the next move. And then sometimes it takes some percolation and some reflection and conversations with people to figure out like exactly how to apply that,
0: you know. So with all these learnings and things that you're doing all the time with the different gurus and the things like that, do you find it can be overwhelming as well, where they they give you these like different little pieces of advice? Because I've had this recently where I'm like, watching these videos and these coaches and they're like, you all you need to do is like set up this chat channel on your Instagram. All you need to do is like do this thing. And I'm like, there's a hundred things that I need to do now that I'm not doing. How do I keep up with these hundred things when it's just this little just me, right? Yeah. How do you keep up with that?
2: Yeah. And that'll lead to burnout real fast. And I and I feel that one <laughs> because you know, because I there's really talented teachers that have incredible words of wisdom and we need them. We need those coach coaches. But you know, people find I feel like there's, um, like using artists as an example, I have a a community called Art Revenue Coaching where, you know, people are members. And so then we, I just help them to figure out how to sell their art. Yeah. And so one of the things that we talk about in there a lot is that there's a lot of different paths. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my particular path is really centered on Instagram. Yeah. But another, there's a member of the group who she wrote a best-selling coloring book. You know, like, and there's other, I know other artists who, you know, found their magic in in real life. You know, like they got a great gallery relationship or whatever. I mean, there's so many different paths and everybody can speak like, if we wanted to have a talk right now about Instagram, I could sell you on Instagram because it works so powerfully for me, you know? Right. And I think it could work for other, I know it can work for other people, but it isn't necessarily everybody's path, Mm -hmm. you know? And so... That's something I have to always remember I tell my I tell my students, I guess are my students, my artists, that we have to be sherlocks of our own experience, and also you know like there are a thousand things you might you could do, but you need to sift it out and figure out well what's the next step for you, and also know that everything you say yes to is you are automatically saying no to many other things yes. And so I have a, I'm have. a real yes person, so I say yes to far, many, far too many things.
0: And there's definitely like 35 hours in a day.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> definitely. Have you started to at least make like, have you refined your process so at all and started making a filter for like, this is what I'm going to say yes to and this is what I'm going to say no to? Or is it still just kind of intuition at the moment?
2: Say more about this filter. So <laughs> I think not. I think I need, I need a filter. <laughs> I, need a, I do say no a lot, but say more about,
1: all right, so maybe this is because you're like, no, I don't have this filter. So Tim Ferriss has very much so talked about like how he knows to say like yes to certain projects and no is like, these are my value checks. And like, this is like, A, my price, B, this like aligns with my values. I trust this product or this project, or this is going to help me get to my goal at the end of the day. Do you kind of go through those or are you like, oh, that seems kind of fun. Like, I'm gonna go
2: do that. I um I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I think I probably have a little bit of the, that I mean, I am still pretty much in my own bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I get to, I'm the one who's coming up with ideas, you know. So I don't really I'm not getting a lot of outside offers of like, I mean, I guess that no, that that's probably not really true because there's the Michaels opportunity or the puzzles or different things come my way and i think that i now ask myself what am i saying no to if i say yes to this that's the filter you know like and i also have now learned at 47 years old that i have a a abysmal record of identifying how long something's going to take and how much energy it's going to take and how much creativity it's going to take. That's very entrepreneurial. Right? Yeah. So I I know for sure that I'm like, oh, this sounds easy. I could do this. And then I'm like, Josie, that's never the way it works. That's not how it happens.
0: I told somebody recently that uh, as entrepreneurs, we always we always measure our days based on like what we were able to get done on our best day, Oof. but never on our worst day. Or somewhere in between, we're always like, yeah, I was able to do those like 200 things like that one day. I should be able to do that every day at, you know, full RPM. No. It's yeah. not possible. No, it's not. It's not.
1: I mean, I think that this speaks to, though, like you've said, like so much of like your process is like the doing is the learning. And so I think that's like what's very curious to me about that is like sometimes by saying yes, you are learning and You really have switched into this like you were an artist and then also like that idea of like content creator very much like you're kind of like two artists at the same time. Is there something that you wish you knew then that you know now about content creation and just like that whole side of your business? Because that's like there's two things. You're technically running two businesses.
2: Josie's eyes are popping (laughs) right now. In agreement, in agreement. Yep. Yeah. I feel like there's more than two, but yes.
1: (laughs) I mean, there's honestly like for many of us, but like really like you probably have like, you know, your hub and spoke model is like, you know, like your hub is just like the art you make. But then the spokes are like, you know, the content creation, the licensing and everything like that. But like content creation, I think is something that all the gurus are like, if you just figure this out, you know, but I'm sure like, but you're self-taught though, through this entire process to get to millions of followers. So like, is there something that you're like, wow, like I didn't realize, or like this was the one thing that kind of helped me along my journey?
2: Relationship. Mm. So I think that, and this is the antidote to getting copied, is that um, somebody could easily duplicate the work that I make. But if somebody, you know, if like one of my followers goes into a hypothetical gallery, I don't use galleries, but if I (laughs) did and there was, my art was there and then there was a duplicate of somebody else's art and mine was twice as much, but they knew me, you know, they would buy mine, you know, they wouldn't, you know, it's like, it's the marker of the, Mm -hmm. it's like, they, they're like, I know Josie. I want to be a part of what Josie's doing. I don't, you know, there could be other art that's even better you know <laughs> like that i like better but it's josie you know so then relationship is about and you know we create a relationship by consistency you know so i i heard somewhere that it takes 7 7 years to build trust in a relationship which is really interesting right mhm and they're, they're talking about like intimate relationship like a marriage or yeah. a friendship or a you know work relationship but i think that that's true with the internet too it just takes a really long time to keep showing up
0: yeah that's interesting because they also say most marriages fail at year seven. Like that's when it typically happens. That's why I find that statistic interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I suppose it's just as somebody just keep does something and it just keeps doing it, you know, and then eventually you just are like, that is who that person is. And now I can trust that about that person. And and so then I think that that is how, I mean, it's, it's sort of like developing your celebrity brand celebrity is a kind of a squishy word because i don't consider myself a celebrity but like to the people that do follow me i am i'm famous to the family is seth was one of my favorite marketing guys he talks about being famous to the family your family could be 10 people Mm -hmm. 10 strangers on the internet that follow you or a million strangers on the internet that follow you and if you keep if you keep popping up in their feed next to kim kardashian and you know i don't know mr beast it's like you will become as famous to them you know you might not have that global name but you are going to be as famous to them as those other you know more known individuals and i think that that creating that relationship which i think is bigger than just the art you know so for me it was like for a long time it was just these time lapse videos and then there was a point an intuitive point where i was like i need my i need to get my face out there right and it was not what i wanted to do like that, yeah. <laughs> that was that, that. did not sound fun to me but i was like i need to be talking to the camera and i need to you know bring the haters and i, yeah. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I need to you know and then at that time then i sort of developed this whole other brand of of me person me being personally available mm-hmm. which is not for everybody you know that's that's that was a that was a, a big change and a hard one you know to move away from a sort of like um just art is can be kind of impersonal just my hands you know but but i think if i had done it sooner if i'd been if it, if i'd brought myself to camera fa- faster i would have a bigger audience now or a more profound and deep relationship with folks so
0: you're telling me something i don't want to hear cuz i don't want to be on camera <laughs> but i know there's a, i have an intuition that it's something i need to be doing within my own business
1: i mean i think though like what josie said earlier it's like your path you know yeah. like i think that there was resistance but now i would you know you've said like you're comfortable with it and it's just like part of it you know so it's like if you truly like don't want to do something like don't do it but if you're like I'm gonna just try it and everything like that and it sounds like now that that consistency has really spoken in your brand and you're like showing up now in these other ways Uh do you personally like I'm very curious about like kind of the makeup the organization structure of your company are you personally interfacing with the majority of your like audience then or is it somebody else on your team that kind of is doing a lot of that like one-to-one interactions cuz it's really time intensive. <laughs>
2: yes it is. I am crap at DMs and I have someone that, that does my might- <laughs> Total crap at DMs. I try to I mean Instagram I I'm on all channels now and I I have a person that responds to comments on the other channels okay. and I'm in the process of hiring someone to be a more precision instrument like the the guy that i have now is good but it's kind of like thank you very much you know it's yeah. it's pretty yeah. bland you know it's like he can he could tackle some customer service stuff but he's not responding personally as me mm-hmm. or like the brand voice so to speak the brand voice yeah and so then one of my intuitive things that i'm working on right now that i i feel pretty strongly about is i have a channel called the josie show so i have the josie lewis art which is my satisfying art videos and then there's the josie show which is my meet blabbing to camera, direct to camera Josie and the, you art know, art police and art stuff, police. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like some sort of soft comedy and yeah. memes and stuff like that. And so the direction I'm going right now is to really double down on the Josie show. But in order to do that, I need help on that particular project because I just can't create the level of content that I want. Mm-hmm. And I also, that brand has far more interpersonal connection yeah. It's really meaningful and 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 I learn a lot from that. Mm-hmm. But I can't keep up with it. And if we're going to increase the channel, then I'm going to need help there. So we're like figuring out how to create that that connection to me, which I think is absolutely going to build the business and the brand and my impact to help people to make art, to because yeah, you know, I think everybody would be happier <laughs> if they yes. if they find a creative outlet. You know, it doesn't have to be fine art, but you know. So then, that's kind of my that's my thrust. You know, and so I can't do it alone. So then, I'm in the hiring process now, of figuring out like what does that person look like? Because when we look at like marketing folks that are like two hundred and fifty dollars an hour, and they came from. I don't know, Best Buy or something. I'm like, you don't know anything. You know, like you figured something out for Best Buy two years ago. And like, to your point earlier, it's like, everything's different now. Yeah. yeah. And you you don't know more than me, you know. And I know I, more than you. Right. Yeah. Oh my yeah I know more. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Ron Swanson. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I Ron Swanson. Exactly. So I'm not, I don't want to pay you $250 an hour so that you can do something super bland and corporate for me because that's not, you know. Anyway, I digress. Hiring is hard. So, what is your team makeup right now? Then, so um, Ryan left his corporate job a couple of years ago to be director of operations. Mm-hmm. So he did a lot of the back end stuff. I heard that your wife actually moved on. Yeah. to another job, which is very exciting. She's so you now lost. moved. Yeah,
0: she, I lost. There was a grieving process to that as well. Because um, so, we're so happy that she's you know taking her career to the next level and moving on. But I also think that everybody, if they have the ability to do it, should work with their spouse.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of people are like, you're
1: working with your husband?
0: I know. That's, that's always, me. that's always,
1: I grew up with like, I saw it go, like I saw it ruin the marriage. And yeah. so like that, I'm a byproduct of that. So right. like, do I think it could work 100%? Cause I know lots of people. And so like, I'm personally going to go through a lot of therapy if I ever decide to
2: hire on my husband. So, cause it's all <laughs> me issues at the end of the day. Well, and sometimes it's just not a fit, you know, like, so it's, uh, that's fine. But I think in the case of Ryan and I, it is, it's been great, you know, so, and then we have a VA that is in, is in, uh, Philippines. Yep. I'm one of those yep, too. He's, he's great. And then I have my e- editor and then we have some moonlighters that come in. And right now we're looking to hire. It's weird. Cause we have a really small organization. So it's, you know, it's kind of like I needed g- kind of a girl Friday. That's also really smart and really experienced. Mm-hmm. And really, so I need like an executive assistant that also knows more than me. A Swiss army yeah. knife.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah yeah
2: yeah larissa's point yeah exactly yeah yeah. we're in progress with this one it's it's a hard one Mm -hmm. i think
1: it's like you're kind of at the next phase in your career now where you're like i see that i want to go here and i can't i've you've hit the ceiling i have figured it out as far as here which i'm personally very much so identify with and now i'm trying to find the people that can get me to the next phase yeah and i think
2: you know ryan and i had did a lot of soul searching about this because it's like well We could, you know, the three options are we could way dial back, we could probably have a reasonable income just selling some art or just kind of living on the residuals from the licensing and, you know, way pull back because the middle ground, which is what we have been doing is me working, both of us working far too much, you know. And it's like I can't I can't do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And I can't do the intuitive stuff because I'm doing all the
0: You're managing yeah, the company. I'm
2: managing everything. The administrative know? stuff. So then it's like I'm I know I'm missing out on the opportunity of really pushing forward the business in a meaningful way because I'm supplying the business with admin. Stuff you know, so so then and and it's like I don't I, so that that middle zone. What we have been doing is off the table. We can't yeah. do that. So we can either way retract, like yep. retire. You know, just be like, Jeez. all right, <laughs> we can we can just dial this back, and we can probably you know we won't be we will reduce our impact and live a good life. Or we can dial it up. And I think that that's where we're at. We're at the, di- well, let's, why not try it? We're young, we're healthy. Like, let's get some people on board and take some risks and dial it up and see what happens, you know? And and, and of course, who knows?
0: And it- Likely, had you dialed it down and retired, you would have realized six months in, like I did, that you actually just want to dial it up. <laughs>
2: did you do that?
0: Last year, I took a sabbatical for six months to working like in the evenings on the business. And then I realized- Throughout that, I was like, I actually just want to take this to the next level. So now that's the process I'm in right now.
2: Ah, hey, right on. Okay.
0: But I didn't know that until I had sure. tried. I was like, I'll just take it slower. I'll maybe go find something part-time and just let this thing slowly go to bed. And then I realized immediately into it, I was like, I am not built for this.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a good observation. I mean, a good realization about yourself. That's And I think I know that about myself too. It's now, I'm not going to be like, I won't be able to just... Go gently into the good night. No. I
1: mean, I think it's like understanding kind of like when you're in the mid processes, choose your heart a little bit. Scaling back, you know, like you're like, well, we're going to have to kind of budget and we're going to have to make some sacrifices and everything like that. Or we can scale it up equally as hard, but it might allow us the financial freedom that when we are at this certain age that we get to be like, I'm going to piece the true fuck out, you know, or it might not. But you're like, I tried and I got to see what that side is because this I think that's what it is, is this side is known of the scale back you can picture it because you've experienced it before as you scale your journey. And so now you're at the phase where you're like, well, I can scale up and I don't know what it's going to look like. And that is terrifying. But I'm going to try because what is truly like, I think that's been the reoccurring theme of so much when we're interviewing entrepreneurs is like, truly, what's the fucking worst that could happen? Right. It's really like when you really sit down and intentionally think about like, what is the worst that you can happen? You're like, oh, I would just go back to maybe it's scaled back down a ton like that's
2: truly the worst like you know it's really not that bad yeah we, we spend some money and we find out it doesn't work or the economy changes really radically and it just it, it's not tenable and then it's like oh, okay well
0: and there's it's a new problem to fix if the economy was to change radically then you're just in a new ecosystem again and you're now going to build off of that
2: yeah and and you know ryan could go back to corporate america mm-hmm. you know he'd, he'd be fine he's capable you know <laughs> and he
0: has a job now within your company that could actually get him hired somewhere somewhere else as experienced. Exactly. I think we forget about that as yeah. well.
2: Mm-hmm. I could go back to waiting tables. I always tell yes. him that. <laughs> I actually love my days of cleaning rooms. It was amazing. You wear, you wear headphones and you get a little workout. Oh my God. And- I sometimes look at the makers here and I'm like, oh, you're just going to. Like, you get to sit
1: there for eight <laughs> hours and you get to listen to podcasts. Kind of like that life. It's a pretty sweet life. That's yeah, a pretty sweet life. Like, I know I wouldn't want it all the time, but there are some days where I feel like I need to schedule myself into be like, I'm actually like, is this the best, highest use? No, of me right now? No, but
2: I do need this for my soul, actually. So. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what's next for you? Well, it's holidays. So as we're recording this, we're coming into the holidays, which is a good, you know, we sell product. So we'll be, you know, and we, we pretty much do everything, you know, Ryan and I do everything from our house. In fact, we have a, like a, a walkout rambler. And so then the whole lower level is all, so we're very much, um, grassroots cottage industry. (laughs) So, and we, uh, we now have, I mean, I think they literally put a, like a pin on the, the USPS, map of our house yeah Bing. like <laughs> oh uh, josie lewis we know about her because we'll do i uh, my my rhythm is shop update so it's like i don't i'm not always just sh- shipping stuff it'll be like i'll you know launch something and then cool. call it and it'll be a surge and there'll be a surge i mean like we're talking i think the last shop update we did we had 800 packages or something you know in a weekend wait so that it was seems like,
0: so manageable not i mean the 800 packages seems a little unmanageable But doing the shop update thing, I think most people think there's this constant stream that you have to have a constant stream of it coming through. The shop update thing is something I'm curious about. Tell me more.
2: Oh, the shop update is the best. And artists always fight back. You know, creators are always like, but i what if somebody has an impulse purchase that they need to make? And I'm like, well, try it. Is it working? You know, like do people, and if it, you know, it clearly for your business, it it's working, you know, for Larissa, I'm pointing at Larissa. Yeah. For Larissa's business, she couldn't, I mean, you probably have launches though. You have product launches, I Yeah, bet. we have yeah. product launches. And I mean, for us, that's part of the reason when we switched to manufacturing
1: because to scale, for my business, we have kind of multiple businesses in it. And one is a production business technically. And that takes a lot of time, energy and resources. And we were like, This is getting really too hard to scale. What is our options here? And one of our options was overseas manufacturing, where I can just send you a PO, match the quality, match the vendor, get it all dialed in. And that was kind of the process of like, understanding through my friends, I've done manufacturing, like how do you vet a factory? And you know, it's actually like, I was very scared of the process in the beginning. I was like, because we have all of these horror stories that we tell ourselves. It's fucking amazing. And like, they're they're very transparent. You get to see all of these things. And then it's like this partner and I get to send a, like a PO and then the product comes back to me. And then, you know, as long as it's up to our quality standards and then I get to sell it and I don't have to like, we still manufacture about like 40%, I would say here. And it's like 60% overseas, but it's really like, we would not be able to scale without doing it this way. I think that's like, you know, everybody's got to find their blend and their mix and everything.
2: So yeah, that's how we've done it. But yeah, shop updates. Well, shop updates, I mean, it's a it's a rhythm that works really well because it's like, it means I don't have to bifurcate my time, mm-hmm. especially yeah. since it's just me and Ryan, you know, like we don't have a whole shipping department that can manage all that stuff as it's coming in. So the way it works is I will, you know, spend whatever, a month or two making the art and then I do all the photo and of course I'm selling one-offs too, you know, so I do, I do sell That's s- intensive, it's intensive, but they're more, they're more expensive and you know, so it makes sense. But, um, I'll, you know, then I'm photographing everything. I'm editing the photos. I'm creating the product listings. I'm sending an email out to my list. I'm teasing it on social media. It's like, it's coming Saturday morning. You know, we're going to at 10 AM, I give people a preview if they're on my list, you know, so then they get to see, they get to pick out the pieces that they want. And then at 10 a.m. it goes live. And then I keep the shop update open for the weekend. I usually shut it down when I get up on Monday morning, you know, and usually mo- the bulk of the orders come in in the first couple hours. And then sometimes I sell out, which is great. And sometimes I don't, which is fine. And then, and then I shut everything down on Monday. We ship everything, you know, that we have a day of shipping. And there's usually customer service stuff that comes in because people are like, oh, it's my old address, and can you actually send this to my other la lad? Can you ba all the time? <laughs> yeah. All the time. That's
1: you know. So funny. You know. Yeah. That being said, yeah. I recently did that and sent a shirt to like my old where I was like, Instagram stop actually autofilling in so much shit, please. Like, <laughs> actually yeah, don't
2: make it
0: quite
1: so easy. Don't make it quite so easy. I am like, I'm assuming that you actually do know where I
2: live, and I, wow, I didn't realize that you have this address from like five years ago. Yeah,
0: it's sneaky sometimes.
2: Yeah. So then, uh, what it does for me is makes it easier to actually just run a studio and ha- and be able to devote time to different aspects of of that. You know, that whole cycle that I just talked about. But then what it does to the customer is presents scarcity and urgency Mm -hmm. because they know she really isn't going to have it available, you know, after today. (laughs) Right. Like, so if somebody's on the fence, it's like, oh, I better do it, you know, Mm -hmm. or somebody else is going to get the one that I like. And so that, so that is, it's just worked very, very well. And really, you know, it's like a lot of, a lot of the artists that I coach resist it because they like this idea. Like, I just, I'm thinking there's going to be a spontaneous purchase. And the, the fact is, there are, but for artists, I don't think that's sustainable. That's not a business. That's not, that doesn't actually like, it's just different for artists. And really when you think about like in the old days, somebody would work two years, create a body of work, bring it to the gallery, there'd be an opening and then yeah. hopefully the work would sell. Or, you know, if you're going to do the art fair market, it's like you work to create the series of work for the art and then you go there and then you sell the art
0: well that's what I was just thinking is like you've created this digital digital art opening it's awesome
2: yeah and it yeah it just it's very effective and so we've tried it other ways you know because I'm because everybody always I have so many artist spreads that are like my like, the, the artists that I coach resist it hard and so I'm like well let's try it like I'll well, I'll test stuff I'll try stuff out for you and like you know how it goes and it you know I'm not every artist like I think there's some people that do have art. You know, there's a lady that started painting, like, these really great little tractors, Mm -hmm. and she found a hot streak with nursery decor. Oh, yeah. And so, she found out that if she runs Google Ads for nursery, for somebody buying nursery decor for an event, you know, for, like, a shower, it was highly effective. So, then for her, it doesn't make sense to have a shop update because... She has something that does have perennial, you know, people are literally searching for that something. Thing. Yeah, for that thing. And so then she can advertise to those people. Yeah. Which is, people do not search for chunky paintings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's that's true. not a Google search. Yeah. You know, not yet, not
1: yet. <laughs> But <laughs> it could be soon. No, I mean everything you just said hundred percent tracks out. There is something about like, yeah, I mean, you know it. It's like for some reason it's like all of a sudden they're like, You're having a kid and you're like, I must create this weird space for this child for some reason, yeah, even though they have right. no idea, but society tells me I must create this space. Yeah. And for some reason fill it with tra- I didn't fill it with tractors. So
0: yeah. Tractors or maps or
1: yeah. Ducks. Ducks. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Well, Josie, it has been such a delight having you on the World's OKS Entrepreneur. I think your journey is just the true entrepreneur journey in like the funnest
2: way possible. So, yeah. Yeah. So fun. So fun. And when are you going to have me back? Let's keep this conversation going. I mean, we have a couple of people we need to invite back because I think like there's a couple
1: of people like that are very reflective about being an entrepreneur and you're one of them. Like, I think it is, like you said, like you're always constantly wanting to learn and grow and I think that is like likewise for us too with the podcast and everything so yes we will have you back probably next year because we've got we actually did it and we got this whole season dialed in so so impressive take three weeks off during the most intense
2: time of the year so yeah totally yeah smart thinking and there's actually so many more
0: subjects that I feel like I want to deep dive with you on in the future
2: yeah after Larissa and I had a coffee the other day and I was like we barely scratched the surface. So I think that's what's like.
1: Entrepreneurship looks so different for everybody and how you choose to craft it. And I think that's what's so fun. And it's like, you already talking about it. I'm sure Andrew's had unlocks. I've had it unlocks. And like, I think that's what's so fun for like our audience too, is like, they'll be like, you know, this was so interesting to me. Or like, you know, however you want to craft your entrepreneurial journey, there is unfortunately not a roadmap. It's just you testing shit out you know but it's really like learning how other people tested stuff out so right. yeah. i
0: guess the only thing i am finding out from everybody is that the roadmap does exist and it's in your gut
2: yeah the intuition the unction, is yeah. right what is the word again The unction, the unction the <laughs> unction
0: i love it well on that thank you so much and we can't wait to talk to you next time it's been a pleasure yeah thank you
1: Wow, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as we did. It was such an amazing conversation filled with so many great nuggets, but also I just think that really great storytelling of, like, there's so many paths to becoming an entrepreneur. We will definitely be having Josie back on the show, so if you enjoyed today's episode, please send us an email at hello at the OKS pod or message us on Instagram and let us know what are some future questions you would have for Josie. What is currently nagging in your brain after listening to that podcast? Also, it is so important for you to share our podcast with your friends, so make sure that if you can, send them through Instagram, whatever means possible. It's the best way for our podcast to grow, and we just love you all so much. You're the fucking best.
0: Yes, thank you. Have an okay week.
1: An okay week. Or an okay day.
0: Have the okayest time.